all therapy all the time on this podcast. <laughs> when I get on. We bring up every possible fucking trigger that we've ever gone through. Oh, fuck. I need help. Tell <laughs> <laughs> oh me about your mother. Welcome to Hey, Did You Ever See That Movie? I'm your host, Ez. And as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Lynn. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. And back by popular demand, the podcaster with a degree in terror, Tony. Hey, how's it going? It's still going great. For this Halloween special edition, we will be reviewing the 1978 horror movie, Halloween, written and directed by John Carpenter, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and a giant guy in a mask. And as always, this podcast will contain spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie, go see it and come back and listen to the podcast. But before we get into it, let's run the trailer. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just Sure, sure. The only reason she babysits is to have a Halloween. <laughs> okay, come on out. guys i'm going to give you a quick synopsis on a cold halloween night in 1963 six-year-old michael myers brutally murders his 17 year old sister judith he was sentenced and locked away for 15 years but on october 30th 1978 
while being transferred for a court date. A 21-year-old Michael Myers steals a car and escapes Smith Grove. He returns to his quiet hometown of Huddlefield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims. Glenn, <laughs> let's get this thing rocking and rolling. All right. So first thought is um, I really believe and feel like the music in this movie is like another character. Um, I liken it a little bit to Jaws, where you hear it and you automatically know what it is. It automatically takes you to the movie and to the characters. And um, yeah, it just, uh, it really kind of, uh, what's the one I'm looking for? It just really t- brings you into the story immediately because it's it's scary music. Right? It really brings you to where uh, John Carpenter wanted you to be. And uh, Tony, you have some thoughts on that? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's definitely one of those iconic scores. As soon as you hear it, you know what it is. Um, I think every every horror fan at one point or another walks over to a to their instrument, whether it's a guitar or a keyboard, and they start playing it just because you're a geek and you do that. You know, I mean, John Carpenter scored most of his movies anyway. You know, he does have a, a musician background. This one, he actually, what I remember, he I think he scored it in four days, according to what I've researched. That's, That's crazy. Really cool. And you said that he went on tour with a band and did these. <laughs> seven eight years ago he actually um went on a small tour and he did basically did the themes to all his films with like scenes from the movies playing behind him it was actually really stupidly awesome it was it was it was very nostalgic it, being in the audience just watching john carpenter at a keyboard just playing all the stuff that i grew up watching it was pretty amazing that is amazing i had no idea he was a musician or anything like that and uh, we were talking a little earlier before we started this. The when you had made a uh, comparison to some of the other cool movies of the time, like you know Jaws, Friday the Thirteenth, and you know these are movies you're going to hear just two, three notes, and you know exactly you know where you are and what you're about to watch. So cool, good stuff. Absolutely. So let's get into the movie. Let's. It's 1963 as the movie begins, and we're treated to the sight of a house, much like any other house in America. White two stories and a jack-o'-lantern lit up on the porch and it lets you know it's Halloween. The camera looks through a window and sees a boy and a girl making out on the couch. After a moment's playfulness with a Halloween mask, they decide to go upstairs. The camera backs up and looks towards the second floor where a light goes out. Then it rushes along the side of the house to an open back door, sneaking in the dark. As the camera stops in the kitchen, a hand reaches into a drawer and takes out a knife. We realize now we're not just a camera. We're an observer or, or we're not an observer. We are now, as the audience, a participant. As the camera approaches the stairs, the boy's voice can be heard saying it's late and he needs to go. He's pulling his shirt back on as he descends the stairs and leaves. We go up the stairs and pause to pick up the discarded Halloween mask and put it on. The camera's view, our view, is now through the little eye holes of the mask. The girl we had seen before is sitting at her makeup table brushing her hair. She's naked save for a pair of underwear and her bed is messy. We approach her. She turns and cries out Michael before the knife descends on her repeatedly. She falls down covered in blood and Michael leaves the house just as a car is pulling up. His parents emerge and find him in a clown costume with the bloody knife as the camera pans back. Tony, I'm going to give you first crack at this as I know this is one of your all-time classics, so hit me. So many thoughts, like, boom. Um, yeah, it, it's, it basically does the, the one of the first through the killer's eyes tropes. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Black Christmas with this one will obviously be compared to throughout the night. Um, but yeah, the, this is one of the first times we, you know, POV from the killer. I mean, this is what, 1978? So, I mean, that was, I'm going to say groundbreaking for the time. Now yeah. it's just one of the things we do all the time. But 
do that. The thing that I always notice now watching it easily into the hundreds when every time I watch it is how fast these teenagers are at sex. They go upstairs, <laughs> he goes to the kitchen. Oh, I got to go. I'm done. It's like, that was not even three minutes and they're done. Come on. Let's not have time to take your clothes off. And, and they're finished with this whole thing. But that's a whole other story. But oh. I love the intro to scene because it basically no one expects a, a, a small kid to do this. Right. So, I mean, that's that's the shock of the scene, the reveal. They pull the mask off and they cut to a, a, a kid. And it's mm -hmm. crazy. Absolutely. Des, what did you think? Okay. So, um, I've maybe seen this movie one time ever. And after watching it today, I realized I had never even seen it all the way through. The One of the scariest scenes for me is just when they're running the credits in the beginning and they've got that kind of dilapidated old pumpkin with the flame and it's been carved and the nose almost looks like it's cut like a butcher knife. And I'm like, that's pretty scary. So let's get into the first scene. Uh, like you said, you know, you get the POV, the kid goes up the stairs. Um, she's brushing her hair. He starts to advocate. And all I could think of is I would spot any six-year-old kid six stabs with a butcher knife before I took the knife away, whooped his ass like a Barbie doll and threw his 35 pound body out the window of that bedroom. Uh, I, I, she's just sitting there with her hands on her shoulders going, ah, ah. <laughs> and then she's instantly dead. And I'm just like, come on, man, this is a little kid. It's a little kid. He didn't even sneak up on her. She was like, Michael, what are you doing with the knife? And then she just sat there and let this little munchkin stab her. It's like, no. I mean, totally. You don't think you could have, uh, you could take two or three jabs from a, a six year old before you opened a can of Tony whoop ass on him? Well, you would think so nowadays. But you gotta remember, this is, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be misogynistic, but this is a girl in the, this was supposed to be the, what, the 60s? Mm -hmm. This is unheard of. She didn't expect that. She's playing the oh no, you know the the oh the vapors, you know. It's like she's got. You don't see it coming. He's six. Yeah, adrenaline. I I, I got no excuse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, way. like I said to Des earlier, it's really one of these times where you have to suspend your belief a little bit and just it's a it's a horror movie. Like this is what happens in horror movies. Girls fall down and go ah, you know, like. It just yes, I probably would also drop kick the kid, but you know, uh, he's, I, he's I can a Chuck forgive it for the movie. He's a Chucky doll. Oh, stop. <laughs> okay, oh, um, this, but yeah, this is how it's gonna go. Okay, yeah, this no, is no, how no, it's gonna go. no, no, it's not, it's not, and it was fine. And then, and then, you know, we get the scene of him in front of the house with the parents, and they're like, "What? What did you do? What did you do?" <laughs> he's standing there in this little, this little clown outfit. <laughs> Oh boy. Do we do I need to take your coffee away from you? No. Okay, so yeah, cool opening scene kind of reminded me of uh uh brain scan some of the murder scenes and that obviously they they borrowed from this and I am going to give this movie a lot of respect like you said cuz you know, you see it all over movies that would follow it. I mean, it's still people borrow from it to this day. So you know, I will give this movie the respect it deserves as the OG of horror movies. Yeah, we also I also want to mention that uh, seventy thousand dollars of the three hundred thousand dollar budget were spent on Panaglide cameras that were special cameras that you that the camera uh, man could actually wear and walk. So that whole scene was a cameraman walking with the camera, and they only did one cut in the whole thing. The rest of it was one long shot. 
And um, I thought that that was really interesting that John Carpenter was like, okay, well, we're just going to cut the budget everywhere else so I can yeah. have these cameras. Yeah, I was going to say, because the rest of the movie looks like it was shot with an eight millimeter and a college student walking around. No, it does not stop it. Total Honey, Total he, used, he used the pan of Panaglide through the whole movie. Stop it. Okay. Oh, my God. So it's now 1978, and a car drives along a dark road in a thunderstorm. As Nurse Marion, played by Nancy Stevens, and Dr. Loomis, played by Donald Pleasant, head to the mental facility where Michael's being kept. Michael's the little boy from before. Uh, so we're now 15 years later, and he's in his 20s. There's a discussion of how the doctor never wants him to get out, but they're going to follow the law and take him in front of the judge. The camera keeps swinging back to the road, showing how hard it is to see, and the thunder is so loud that it's jarring. We get our first indication something is wrong when the nurse pulls up and you can see white gowns wandering along on the side of the road. Patients are out, and they shouldn't be. It's uh, downpour, and the doctor's alarmed. He jumps out of the car to use what looks like some sort of a call box when the nurse hears something on her roof and opens her window. A hand reaches in and attacks her. She gets away and scoots to the other side of the seat where the same hand comes down and breaks the glass behind her head. She scrambles out of the car and runs while the patient that was on her car jumps in and takes off. Des, a bunch of mental patients wandering around in a dark stormy night. Are you going to open your window for any reason whatsoever? Story of my life. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this, this scene... Um... You know, it was cool. It was cool. I mean, she's attacked by a hand, and then you see him in his, you know, little robe on the roof and stuff. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, he jumps in the car and he, he takes off. He's never driven a car before, but he's doing all right in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the whole mythology is that who taught him to drive a car. But as we learn through the whole series of the has powers. Yes. I'm not saying that whole thing, but it's like, you know, like like Loomis says, like, you know. He's never doing all he was doing very well last. Yes. And and let's just give a shout out to, to, to Donald Pleasance for even doing this movie because yes. Carpenter went in like a bunch of different places. He won every uh, Christopher Lee to he had, there was like a laundry list. And finally, um, yeah, Donald Pleasant said, yeah, I'll do it. And he was only, I think they only had him for like a week or some small amount of time. So they had to shoot him very quickly. And he was very, very um, gracious to John Carpenter, who was basically, he only had like one to two films under his belt at that point. He had a uh, dark star and assault on precinct 13. So he was mm. pretty much nobody in Hollywood to get, you know, Donald Pleasance, who's been bond. You got your, all your, um, I know we get the name of our force 10 or whatever they were, but oh, yeah. it's like, he became a, a frequent collaborator with escape from New York and, and movies. So oh, I mean, yeah, to win him over was, was shows great strength on John Carpenter as a director as a, a, a person to choose someone who's iconic in this world, because pretty much anyone who thinks of like, you know, there's another movie called um, Leslie Vernon, the rise of Leslie Vernon behind the mask. And basically they call it, it's like an Ahab, you know, there's, there's right. always the person who's chasing the slasher. They call him an Ahab and Dr. Loomis pretty much is the Ahab that all mm -hmm. Ahabs are based on because right. Dr. Loomis is consistently, constantly, finding trying to get to Myers trying to get to Myers trying to get to Myers hey chase him down do what he's got to do every other movie is based on that that trope of the Ahab yep right and another uh funny point is during this particular scene they said that Donald Pleasance was probably about two bottles of wine into the night when they oh, did no. this scene because uh it was it was pretty miserable it was cold and it was raining and 
So he had a bunch of wine and everyone's like, I don't know if he's going to be able to say his lines. And he did. He nailed them. So good for him. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like he did a lot more waiting for Michael Myers than chasing him. But, you know, he was in the right location, I guess. <laughs> so we're back in Haddonfield and it's a quiet start to Halloween morning. Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, leaves her house to head to class. Her dad, a realtor, reminds her to leave the key under the mat at the Myers place because people are coming to look at it. As she walks, she is joined by their little boy, Tommy Doyle, played by Brian Andrews. Who you get the idea she babysits him, although the slightly ominous music uh, playing over their conversation makes their conversation muffled and it's, it's ominous. And you're, you're thinking something's going on already. Uh, as they approach the now decrepit Meyer house, the music backs off. The little boy is clearly uneasy with the house and with Laurie going up onto the steps. We get a shot from behind the curtain door and the heavy breathing lets us know that we're seeing this from Michael's perspective. He's watching as Laurie steps up to the, uh, to the door and leaves the key under the mat. As she heads off to school, we see the jumpsuit-clad jump shoulder and popped collar watching her as she goes. So, Tony, this is our first time seeing Laurie in Jamie Lee Curtis's first role. Uh, she had some big shoes to fill considering her parents, but she seems to be right at home in front of the camera. Do you agree? Oh, God, yeah. And I mean, that's that was Carpenter admitted. He's like, that was his tribute to Alfred Hitchcock, one of his idols. If he can get Janet Lee's daughter in this movie, that's like that's that's his tribute. You know, that was perfect. And she was someone she actually auditioned for Annie, who was the more outspoken um, right. because she had, as she put it, to play a shy girl. I was too outspoken to play her. But John Carpenter wanted me to do it. So I did it. And that was here we are 40 years later. Still, she's the ultimate final girl. Yes. Every, you know, she's the queen. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis always seemed like she was in her 30s to me. I mean, I know she was only 19 when this was shot, but she just was one of those people that just never looked like actually young to me. I was surprised when I Googled it and it said she was 19 when this was shot. I was like, man, she still looked like she was like 30. <laughs> she kind of just has one of those like a mature face. Yeah. And the little kid had that. I was saying to Dylan, that classic, uh, Nicholas from Eight is Enough haircut that we all had back in the 70s. That super thick, like giant head of hair that like kids don't have today. <laughs> we all had those bad teeth right in the beginning. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so true. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So back at the mental health facility, Dr. Loomis is angrily yelling at the administrator, uh, telling him, you know, I've told you, Michael, it was dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And nobody would listen. The administrator says that his hometown is over 150 miles away and Michael can't drive. And Loomis says, like Tony said, he was doing very well last night. Maybe somebody gave him some lessons. Um, I honestly felt, Des, I felt like Donald Pleasance might be doing a bit of overacting here. You know, he's flipping his jacket at the car. He's peeling off. But I kind of like it because it, it adds a bit of personality to what could have been a kind of flat character. Um, yeah. I, I mean, his acting honestly saved this movie because there was not a lot of um strong acting in this movie <laughs> so yeah I, I thought he was just fine i uh i i love him yeah i mean th there's a tv version which actually has the courtroom scene when he's a kid when michael's a kid mm. um and you know standing there trying to basically saying how evil he is, even as a young child. The thing about that always bothered me about this scene and the other ones later on is everybody blames Loomis for him getting out. Like he, yeah, let him out. yeah he so wasn't even there. Want? Right. And that, it always bothered me. So this guy is basically saying, it's like, well, you know, you, you did this and you did that. You never told us 
There was one person who said how dangerous Michael was since the minute he met him, and that's been Loomis. Yeah. But that's why he, I always took it. That's why he's so intense. He's tired of hearing, this is your fault. This is like, motherfucker, it's not my fault. It's all your fault. Yeah. 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 And the cop says as much later. I mean, we'll get to it. So, right. yeah, everyone's blaming this poor guy. Yeah, like he did this thing. And it's like he he was the only one that was saying to people, he's evil and you got to watch out. Mm -hmm. So Laurie's in class and we have some foreshadowing with what the teacher's discussing. The teacher is discussing fate and how no matter what somebody does, if they're destined to meet with somebody, it's going to happen. The teacher continues talking about destiny as Laurie sees an odd figure standing outside right behind the tan uh, station wagon from the rainy night before. She looks away and looks back again and he's still there. Just as she becomes alarmed, the teacher calls on her and she has to answer the teacher's question before looking back and the strange man and the car are gone. Um, Tony, I actually find it really interesting that for a scary movie, so much of what happens in this movie, especially at the beginning, is right out in broad daylight. And it makes it almost more frightening to me than if he was hiding in shadows. Exactly. That's it. He was sitting there with my friend's VCR and his, his Betamax copy of this. We literally paused every scene Michael Myers is in just to study how amazingly cool it was that they showed the bad guy, you know, the villain in the daytime, right out in the open not high. I mean, even though he ducks behind the bush later on, it's like, yeah. he's still right there. And that's yeah. even scary. Like it's, he's not hiding in shadows. He's not hiding behind anything. It's like, there he is staring directly at you. Like you, and like whether he could see her or not, that was just in such a great introduction to this is what we're dealing with. Yeah. 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 And a side note on that classroom. I believe Wes Craven basically copied that for Nightmare Elm Street right before Nancy falls asleep. The teacher and the students are talking about fate as well. Really? Oh, I didn't I know that. I believe mm. right before she falls asleep, there's a kid reciting a poem about fate and he kind of has the voice as she go drifts off into the nightmare. So it's one of those back and forth in the, in the giving each other tributes. Interesting. I feel like a lot of times in this movie, um, I almost lost the character of Jamie Lee Curtis and put myself in that character. So like in this movie where he's across the street with a car, I felt like John Carpenter wanted me to feel like Michael Myers was staring at me and yeah. I was noticing him across the street. I think he wanted the whole theater to feel that uncomfortable, scared feeling through the character of Jamie Lee Curtis, if you will, if you kind of know what I'm getting at there. Absolutely. He's trying to scare you by making you feel, what would it feel like if you looked out the window and this person was staring at you? Yeah. So it like, doesn't matter if he can see her or not. I mean, I'm getting what John Carpenter's laying down. Yeah. yeah. Very well done. Just again, going back to the cinematography of Dean Cundy, he just had such a knack for movie. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a close up shot. It's, it's far that you can actually miss the mask until you go, Oh shit. It's right there. Yeah. Cause he's behind. I think you're just looking at the car and then you sort of glance up and there's him standing there. Yep. Yeah. So at school, Tommy's being picked on by a group of boys. They tell him the boogeyman's going to come and they trip him and he falls onto the pumpkin he was carrying and it crushes it. As the boys run away, one of them is stopped by a pair of hands and a chum suit. The iconic piano tune tells us that Michael is here. The boy that he stops looks up at him and you can see immediate fear on his face as he runs away. But Tommy's walking in the other direction and hasn't seen Michael. Michael follows along, gets into the tan station wagon. He pulls up alongside him only for a moment before driving off. And as I got to say, I found the combination of the heavy breathing in the mask and the camera shooting from behind the cage in that state-owned car. 
uh, along with the piano music to be kind of unsettling. You feel like you're watching somebody about to abduct a child. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny because what I did like about, I mean, I, I have so many problems with this movie that we'll get into, but I also have so many things that I loved about it. And you know, this kind of, this guy almost kind of feels like, like a Jeffrey Dahmer or something, you know, like just some, like, you know, 20 something, 30 something, like psycho white guy who's not quite sure how he wants to hurt people. He just wants to hurt people. And yeah, I mean, it's a creepy character and, you know, nowadays, could he drive around in the mental hospital mobile with a giant white mask on, uh, you know, around the, the, the elementary school? Probably not, but it worked. <laughs> yeah, it was it was scary. Sure. Tony, do you have anything you want to add there? No, just it's it again. It's just further. Um, it, it's a very intimidating, unsettling scene. You know, because at that point you're not sure why. You he obviously has seen Tommy Doyle mm -hmm. with Laurie, so we know that you know it, he's now seeing people outside basically in her in her orbit right and so i mean it's, it's a little disturbing that he's he's basically staking claim to this the circle right yep yep so dr loomis is seen calling the haddonfield police he's pulled off the side of the road and he's using a payphone and he tells him to be aware that michael's on the way to town of course they brush him off and after he hangs up he sees a truck kind of in the tall grass and uh, it catches his eye so he approaches it and sees Michael's hospital whites, and he realizes that it's definitely Michael because the matchbook that the nurse had been using the night before is on the ground. What he doesn't see is that the truck's owner is lying dead in the grass and stabbed much like Michael's sister's been. So, Tony, now we know where he got the nifty jumpsuit. Yep. The, the, the one thing I take out of the scene that I always... All right, so it was obviously the nurse's mass matchbook. We saw that. Mm -hmm. But what's not really is like, what's a nurse doing in a strip joint? <laughs> Because the rabbit <laughs> red is supposed to be a strip joint in the movie. Why well, I mean, she, she was also chain smoking parliaments, so you know. <laughs> yeah, gotta make money on the side. Everyone was chain smoking in this movie. <laughs> oh my goodness! All right, so Laurie and Linda, played by PJ Souls, are leaving school when they're joined by Annie, played by Nancy Kynes. Laurie realizes she forgot a book, and when she turns to think about returning to school to get it, the tin station wagon comes around the corner. As Michael drives by, he's in shadow, and you can't really see him inside the car. Annie yells, hey, jerk, speed kills, and the station wagon comes to a screeching halt. The girls stand there looking at the stopped car before it starts up again and drives away. Then after Linda's gone into her house, Laurie sees the, a man standing a few houses up, and she realizes it's the man from earlier. He steps behind the bushes. Annie runs up to talk to him, but there's no one there. As Annie heads into her house, Laurie's left alone and confused. She keeps looking behind herself before she bumps right into Sheriff Brackett, played by Charles Cypher. And Brackett gives a great one-liner. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. Gave us a bit of a jump scare and showing us how Carpenter's going to use uh, misdirection in order to get that jump scare. And uh, that's something this movie seems to do pretty well. There's a lot of misdirection and uh, drawing your eye from one place to another uh, in order to not see the scare before it actually hits you. Um, yeah, this scene for me was a little, uh, you know, she's seen this guy three times now, this like giant creep with a white mask on. And, you know, he's obviously stalking her. You know, he's parked outside the school. She's seen the car drive by again. Now he's, you know, standing in front of her and then ducking behind a bush. 
And, you know, not 30 seconds later, she bumps into the sheriff, not 10 feet from where she just saw the guy wearing the mask. And she doesn't say to him, you know, fuck, there's this guy. He's been following me since like this morning. He was outside the school. I just saw him on the street. And two minutes ago, he was standing right there. She doesn't well, mention any of that. Said that she might be losing it is what I think she thinks initially because nobody else has seen him but her. Oh, man, that's a stretch. I mean, she knows what <laughs> she's seen. She knows what she's seen. I mean, she should just be like, hey, can you just go take a look behind that bush and see if there's a maniac? Because he's been stalking me all day. <laughs> but she doesn't say anything in that. I, I had trouble letting that go. <laughs> oh, I think I think Delin's actually pretty on it is the fact that later on when, you know, she's he calls her and she's eating a peanut butter sandwich she's like oh great first you're seeing people now you're hearing you know obscene chewing it's like they're making fun of her so that's why she probably didn't say it right, right. It's like, girls you know pj souls is a cheerleader and the other one mm-hmm. is the popular one that you know the experienced one and laurie's the virginal bookworm so she's yep. the shyer one she's not going to speak up because the other two are just going to give her shit which is what they did all movie pretty much true and true let me just touch on the fact that i have an unhealthy J. Souls, my first, you know, celebrity crush. Oh no! In rock and roll high school, awesome. Love PJ Souls. <laughs> and she was in Carrie too, wasn't she? She was. Yeah. My first Ooh. crush as a little kid was Press from Blade Runner. My dad inappropriately <laughs> took me to go see it in the movie theater one summer. The two movies he took me to was Saturday Night Fever and Blade Runner. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. And you were like a kid kid. My childhood was so fucked up. My mother took me to go see the road warrior in the movie theater. Oh, my dad did too. The, the, cool. You went and saw the original road warrior. Oh God. Yeah. Really? I think I was yeah, like, me, just Revere showcase just opened up. It was one of the first movies they played there. How did he explain the rape show, scene to you? Um, How... We didn't really talk about that. Whenever <laughs> sex came on, just stared straight ahead. Would you like some, <laughs> would you like some junior mint son? <laughs> That was odd. <laughs> Unresolved trauma 101 with Tez and Tony. <laughs> Mom, Man, what's that? Th- all therapy all the time on this podcast. <laughs> get on we bring up every possible fucking trigger that we've ever gone through. Oh, fuck. I need help. <laughs> oh Tell me about your mother. Anyway. Oh my, <laughs> my mother. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a it's a freaking miracle neither of us wound up in a mask i'm joking all right go ahead okay <clears throat> so laurie returns home to find her be- bedroom window wide open as she goes to shut it she notices the man standing in the drying laundry outside she slams the window shut and the man seems to have disappeared uh the phone rings and there's nobody on the other end of the line uh it rings again and, and he says it was just her what was she saying she was chewing or something like that after a brief conversation, Laurie lays down on her bed. And Tony, I got to be honest here. If I were her, I'd be running from room to room, locking the windows and staring out them paranoid, uh, convinced that somebody was after me after seeing this guy four times that day, you know? Yeah. Definitely. And, and again, because I'm, I'm a geek, it actually, she actually does do that. Right after ah. that, that okay. PJ Souls knocks on her door. And she's afraid to answer it, obviously, because everything is just going on. Mm-hmm. PJ Souls shows up. Can I borrow that shirt that you have? So that lady, it's funny because she borrows a shirt from her. Where's on a date with Bob? And like when Bob's spilling beer on a lady, she's like, this is an expensive shirt. And it's like, we always get a chuckle. It's like, that's not even your fucking shirt. But whatever. <laughs> but there's a whole scene where like Laurie's like totally paranoid answering the door, looking out the windows, you know, making sure it's not some crazy guy. It's just, it's just Lynn. Hmm. 
I wish they hadn't cut that because that would have made way more sense to me. Yeah. So. Um, I noticed in the scene that when she goes into the room, you know, there's the curtains are blowing in through the window on the right, mm-hmm. but there's no wind at all coming in through the window on the left. And <clears throat> I just assumed they only had like one fan there. It's a low and, budget uh, movie, man. Low budget movie. One yeah. Fan. And on the, and on the walk home, uh, you know, for the whole walk, it's like a nice sunny day and everything's very dry. And when she finally gets to like the end of the street and sits on that concrete bench, like the entire, uh, the entire neighborhood is soaking wet, like it had downpoured, which I thought was interesting because it was all in the same, you know, in that same probably half hour walk home. Well, I mean, the biggest, the funniest story that's always the biggest <clears throat> one that comes up when they talk about the making of obviously filmed in Pasadena, California. Mm. So they literally had bags of dead leaves shipped in and it was someone's job to throw dead leaves on the lawn, perfectly green lawns with green trees. If you look at the lawn, all dead leaves. All trees huh. full of green leaves. Oh man, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, wasn't it spring? It wasn't even fall. Yeah. Yeah. So it was springtime in Pasadena. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It did give me the flavor of fall. I mean, it felt Halloween-y. It felt right. You know, I mean, I wasn't looking for the green trees and stuff. I would have never noticed that Tony hadn't said anything. I, I never had a problem with the way the town looked. It felt like it was supposed to yeah. to me. It, it's a it's enough trickery, enough uh that you believe it. Definitely. I'd say. Definitely. All right. So sometime, uh, well, am I jumping here? Okay. Yeah. Sometime later, Laurie heads out uh, with Annie as Dr. Loomis is at the cemetery looking for Judith Meyer's grave. The grave marker is missing. Annie and Laurie are smoking a joint and unbeknownst to them, the tan station wagon is right behind them. It pulls over right as they run into Annie's dad, the same sheriff from before. And he says somebody broke into the hardware store and stole a Halloween mask, some rope and some knives. And, you know, Des, I think you know very well that the minute Lori opened that car window, that her father knew exactly what they had been doing 10 seconds earlier. Yeah, that was the first thing I was like, man, this cop sucks. But (laughs) in John Carpenter's defense, you know, she says, you know, he knew he knew we were smoking. He smelled it. The dad is the dad is looking the other way. It's his daughter and he doesn't want to believe it or he's, you know, it's denial, whatever. It's the 60s. And he's just he's choosing to look the other way. He smelled the weed. I'd like to think he did. Tony. There's a delete scene or it's in the novelization because again, 10-year-old Tony read the novelization five or six times. I love movie. it. But he actually says after they pull away beat again. So he did I wish not they, let it go. I wish they left those lines in. I mean, right? some of it. I like a little, I like, you know, a little like what I just said. Like, you know, I'd like to believe he smelled it. But I, I think in a couple of these instances, I would have liked to have seen it just spelled out for me. And and just I the thing I like most about this whole thing is like we get dynamic you know mm-hmm. their whole conversations like oh so you do think about boys oh ben tramer it's like oh you really do want to go to the dance you know so it's i like that they human they're not just victims they're not just these cookie cutters they actually gave them a little background a little depth to it which i actually kind of like the scene for that reason yeah yes absolutely they're not one dimensional and um they definitely don't feel like afterthoughts mm-hmm. you know there's not um, a, there's not a ton of uh like hard acting in this like it's no. it's it, it breezes the the movie breezes you know it breezes from scene to scene you've got these young kids that obviously don't have a ton of acting experience i mean Jamie Lee Curtis is really good you know uh, the doctor's really good but you know we're not getting a ton of acting in this movie if you will 
Right. I just also at this point where we're talking about the girls and the acting, uh, I would do, like to mention Deborah Hill, who w- co-wrote this with John Carpenter. <laughs> and they said that, you know, her influence was what gave the girls some dimension as opposed to just being victims. So right. I just wanted to make sure I mentioned her. Hmm. Um, yeah. She also ends up being uh, John Carpenter's partner, and she is involved with a lot of his projects going forward. Uh, so let's see here. Yeah, like you said too, you know, these three girls definitely have a lot more, um, a lot more character than, for instance, like the teenagers in Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, you know, they feel like real people. So yeah. Yes. So I felt like this shot here that came up here it was really kind of cool. Loomis approaches the sheriff, and as he's waiting on the sidewalk for the for the cop, the tan station wagon pulls up and drives right past him. I mean, he's behind him; he can't see it, but it's like, oh god, he was so close. Yeah, <laughs> that 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 station wagon is everywhere. It's, he's really getting around. He is very inconspicuous vehicle. <laughs> yeah, with a big mask on, big white mask on. Oh Gold my goodness! Station wagon, state seal on the. Just didn't even pull the sticker off (laughs) in the mental mobile. Oh man. They're not looking too hard for him because he's pretty easy to find if you really wanted to see him, but that's, you know, whatever. Again, I feel like Carpenter is brought me into the movie and I'm supposed to be seeing these things. And I am. So, so uh, they have Laurie and Annie have a conversation about uh, the weed and about boys and the the station wagon is right behind them. Michael Michael Myers has zero chill because he's on their bumper and Annie is completely blind because she never is like this asshole, is, you know, tailgating me. I mean, yeah. he's on top of them through the whole thing. Yeah. I'm not really sure how far they drove because it was daylight. And as soon as they pull up to the houses to babysit, it's pitch blackout. Yeah. So Annie drops off Laurie. They pull in and then she pulls into the driveway across the street of the house that she's going to be babysitting at. And Michael is not tra- is still not trying very hard to not be seen. Um, his movements have been totally suspect at this point. <laughs> but um, I know that this um, movie is one of the first when it comes to be consi- being, you know, considered a quote unquote horror movie. Uh, but is this Tony, is this also one of the fr- first times that we get a lot of scenes from the view of the the villain i know you kind of mentioned that before but uh this feels like there's a lot coming from the villain's point of view to me this is definitely one of the biggest influences obviously i mean peeping tom i believe was one of the first ones mm-hmm. um to to do point of view point of peeping tom was he basically right. would murder women through the viewfinder of a camera so we're watching them as he puts the the uh, tripod blade into them as far as other ones go i believe this is the first one that it was really put you you are the killer yeah Mm -hmm. and since then everybody uses it you know yeah i mean it it works really well i can understand why right yeah it's cool because he he does a nice job of shifting back and forth between you know you seeing the movie through the eyes of the killer and also seeing the movie through the eyes of the victim like you know for instance after school when he's you know standing by the car and you feel like you know you're in the in the seat of jamie lee curtis this scene though was again it was a problem because you shot from, you know, bright sunny day to pitch dark, like within two streets. I it it was distracting. And then he's, you know, he's pulled up right behind him in front of the house with the high beams on, and they're not noticing the mental mobile behind him with the lights on. <laughs> and you know, she hops out, all right, see you later. And like the car is like Michael Myers is literally five inches behind him in that same giant station wagon, and she doesn't even notice him. 
it was, you know, it, it was tough to, to look past it. Right. I mean, I know why they did it because it's just for a movie, but I mean, he probably should have had a little bit more chill. Yeah. Maybe, you know, put a couple car lengths behind him and shut the, the headlights off. <laughs> but, but he's not a PI. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> and neither is she apparently. <laughs> so the doctor and the sheriff go into the old Myers home there. They find a dead dog. That's still warm. And the doctor said that he was hungry. So that's pretty gross. Uh, oh. sheriff seems, yeah, the sheriff seems unconvinced, but follows the doctor anyways. They go upstairs where a loose drain pipe breaks a window, scaring them both. Loomis says he'll wait at the house because he thinks Michael's going to come back. And the sheriff says, I'll be back in an hour. Dad's going to be honest with you. I'm not waiting in that house. No way. I'm not waiting <laughs> in that house. Did they show the dog? No. Okay. I didn't think so. Cause, dog. cause I didn't really, I didn't catch that it was a dead dog that had been half eaten. I, uh, I wish that they had given me more there because that's terrifying i mean freaking the guy's eating dogs that's awesome yeah i know awesome that's terrible <laughs> well it adds to the the terror of this psychopath michael myers i wish he had eaten one of the bodies <laughs> oh god no yeah all right no, go ahead. you're jumping into a different movie at this point <laughs> well am i i mean yes. I, no because you know jason from the lake and michael myers are two completely different characters and before I watched this movie again, I kind of just was glomming them all together. I was like, ah, same type thing. Not at all. Michael Myers is like super disturbed. And, you know, I, I and now finding out that he ate a dog, I'm like, wow, this, this killer has a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot more there than jason with the mask and the knife that's I mean, all I'm i suppose saying. he can't go to the safeway and pick up a sub so no you don't eat a dog because all right we're... yeah we're way <laughs> off track dude yes okay. we are back on track i'm reeling it in okay so laurie and annie are now talking on the phone while they're babysitting and he says she called the boy laurie likes and asked him to the dance for her <laughs> what are you laughing about now he ate a dog go ahead <laughs> Laurie is busy being mortified when Tommy looks out the window and sees Michael across the way staring at his house. He tries to get Laurie's attention, but by the time she looks, there's no one there. Now, Tony, after Laurie's been seeing a dude following her all day, don't you think she would have taken what Tommy said a little bit more seriously? Oh, we've learned Tommy's kind of a dick. You know, we've learned, <laughs> he's just this needy kid who's like, oh, we're going to do this. Are we going to carve Jack Lantern? We're going to read comic books. We're going to watch movies. It's like, all right, stop, stop. Just <laughs> riddle and boy. Like, we'll get there. So, yeah, she's on the phone being, like, completely mortified by her friend who, like, totally, like, gave up the guy she dug. And here's this kid just, wah, 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 he's the boogeyman. Wah, wah. Like, all right, stop. Right. So, I, I get that she would just let that go because Tommy's kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. He is. Because of the movie, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, I completely <laughs> agree with Tony on that, too, because, you know, he's been he's been squawking about the boogeyman all day long. And yeah, I'm, I'm with Tony. I, I don't think I would have given it a second thought, especially now that her brain is in like, you know, boy mode. True. True. I mean, I love my like 25% of the time. Like, Tara, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Jump. All right. That's fucking great. <laughs> look what hey, I can do. You want to see me do something sketchy? <laughs> that's awesome. Oh my gosh. So uh, Annie spills some butter on her clothing and immediately strips in the kitchen because that's what anyone would do. <laughs> you do when you babysit with children, right? Yeah, I got a little just... butter. I got a little butter on my sleeve today. I was making some toast and I definitely wasn't nude in the kitchen. <laughs> 
she pulls on an oversized shirt over her underwear and socks. Uh, I forgot when I was watching this that another dog gets killed here, which is a bummer. Um, while I wish they had just left me with the dog whimpering, I didn't need to see what was happening. The shot wasn't too terribly graphic, and I appreciate that. Um, Laurie and Tommy are watching a movie, and I thought this was interesting that the name of it is The Thing. And mm. uh, at first I was like, wait a second, was The Thing really an old movie and John Carpenter redid it? And then I was like, no, no, he was. this was something that he was going to do in 1982. And, well, he obviously didn't know it was going to happen, but he was a project he was working on, and uh, he used it as a movie for this. And um, yeah, I thought that was interesting because at first I was like, oh, is it an old movie from the 50s? And he redid it. But no, nope, he just used this instead of making up a movie. He used one of his own projects. Uh, so mm -hmm. she assures him that the boogeyman isn't going to get him. And they decide to go make a jack-o'-lantern. Nice. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Tony. I mean, the thing is a real movie. <laughs> well, yeah. no, I know it is. But at the time it wasn't because this was 1978 and he didn't make that until 82. Oh, I know, but the thing from another world is, and it's actually one of the reasons John Carpenter got into making movies. That's the movie that scared the living hell out of him as a kid. And oh my God, really? Okay. So, because oh yeah. because it, it was he used the same titling, uh, like as, from his movie. So that's why I was yeah. like, oh, oh, it's it's totally his his version of that. Because the, the gotcha. thing from another world is just it's it looks like a, a man when it breaks in. It's mm -hmm. not a virus that goes from person to person, which is what Carpenter did, because Carpenter was basically in 82. AIDS epidemic was starting to get going, and he wanted an analogy for that. But right. again, that, again, that's a whole other podcast and a whole other trauma we can bring up later. Sure. <laughs> but um, no, is one of the, his biggest influences when he was a kid. He watched that movie, and it scared the hell out of him. So it's something he's always been obsessed with. So he wanted to put that in his own movie to sort of say, they're watching put my favorite scary movie in. Gotcha. All right. Man, the original okay. thing by John Carpenter, that was a freaking wow. I mean, five rewatches. <laughs> just what a great well, movie. Now, now it's not even worth us doing it. <laughs> yeah. It's it just not. You can't tear that movie apart. There's just no. too much awesome in that movie. No, it's freaking it's, amazing. Freaking amazing. So, in this movie, Tony, how many kills is there, um, including his sister? Is it four? Uh, um, Annie. His sister, and if you count the two dogs, yeah. So I was oh, gonna and the um the 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 mechanic. So let's say okay. seven. I was gonna say so. Uh, we've got five people and two dogs. I mean, what? Yeah. And I and I actually looked at the at the um timer, and I was like, wow, man, it was an hour into the movie before we get our first teenage kill. Yeah. Uh, I was we're about to get there, though. That's not no, bad. but I'm just saying I was surprised at you know how long we got into this movie. I was like, wow, there's only you know 35 minutes left, and he hasn't killed anybody yet except for the mechanic and his sister. I mean, I and think two that's dogs. I love about Carpenter's style is Carpenter would rather go dread than graphic. Mm. Outside of the thing, most of his movies aren't graphic; they're just full of darkness and dread. I mean, the fog. There's only like the fog is easily one of my my top ten horror movies of all, time. and that's nothing but atmosphere, yeah, and just just a feeling of dread throughout the whole thing. And this is, I mean, this being his third movie, is just he was honing his craft so well with those scenes of Michael just standing there. What do you do with that? You, it's completely unnerving. It's looking directly, like we said, looking directly at the camera, looking. You can't confront it. You don't know what to do when someone you catch someone staring at you. The first thing isn't to go, what are you staring at? It's like, all right, what the, what the fuck? This, it yeah. freaks me out. 
Yeah, I look away. If if I see somebody staring at me, I look away because I'm like, uh, like I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, hey, what the fuck you're looking at? I mean, I suppose if they kept it up and kept it up, maybe I would. But so uh, funny, just a funny little story. Two seconds. I was watching a movie in Quincy. I don't know if you guys remember the movie theater that was in Quincy Center. Oh yeah, but it was uh, middle of the day. I'd gone down there. I don't even remember what I was watching, but it was middle of the day, work day, and I was down, you know, maybe seven or eight rows up from the screen and it was an empty theater and there was a guy sitting across the aisle in the seat directly across from mine and i looked over and he was literally just staring at me nope oh god and nope. i watched a movie i looked back at the movie you know for a minute or two i looked back over and he was still staring at me and i got up and left the theater <laughs> and i never i didn't watch the movie Oh God, no, thank you. Yeah, he I mean, was, he really, was looking to wear you like a coat. I don't know. I think he was. I don't know what he was looking for, but <laughs> I wasn't interested, regardless of what was going on. <clears throat> Odd. Oh dear. And I want to say something about the uh, standing and staring and then disappearing. Um, I thought maybe Carpenter went back to it a few too many times. Um, cause it was really effective the first couple of times I saw it, but by like the fifth or sixth time, I was like, ah, I wish he had like one more trick or two more tricks with Michael Myers in this movie, because, you know, he, he wasn't killing anybody at this point. We were about an hour in and I just, he just kept trying to scare me with this. And we didn't even get a lot of Michael Myers, um, jump scares. Like usually the jump scares is like the sheriff or, you know, something else. So I kind of wish he had given me one or two more tricks with Michael Myers, but you know, it was very cool. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was very cool, but he used yeah, it a lot. Yeah, again, think, this is him learning his craft and and learning how to place that dread, that kernel of dread in your mind, and you're waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. Yeah. It's almost like you, you, you're not expecting it to happen because we're now an hour into the movie, yeah. and then it does. So, But the suspense starts to die after a while. It's like, all right, I've seen him standing yeah, there. Disagree. When yeah. we see when the when... Annie's on the phone talking to Laurie before she, yep. and it go, you know, she walks across the kitchen and back is that full glass door in the kitchen and it's cracked open. And then she walks back over in the background. He's just standing there. He that's fucking terrifying. Cause he won. We're seeing it. She's not. It's the, it's the Alfred Hitchcock time bomb is it's Alfred Hitchcock hidden bomb thing. Mm -hmm. You shoot the bomb under the chair and let them talk for 10 more minutes. You're waiting for that bomb to go off. Mm. You're waiting right. for him to walk through that door. And then the camera pans again, and he's. But you know right. he has full access to her anytime he wants. So where is he going to show up? Where is he going to pop out from? It's the suspense building. And it's the dread that Carpenter has set up. And she goes out to the laundry room, and we see the mask outside, but we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Because we know he's there, and he could literally any time, boom, dead. But he doesn't. He paces himself, and that's what I love about Carpenter's style. Yeah. I also am amused that Des is like, this guy looking in through the window isn't scary. Meanwhile, he'll go around this house and he'll close every blind <laughs> and he'll be like, everyone's looking in and nobody's looking in. Like, <laughs> like we're on the second floor. Nobody is looking in. And yet he thinks that it's not scary that the, the serial killer is standing out there staring at her through the window. Holy crap. You would piss your pants, please. I'm not I'm not trying to close the shades because I'm scared. I'm trying to close the shades because I like walking around the house in my underwear. <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, dear. So let's get back on track here. I'm reeling it back in again. Uh, so Annie takes her laundry to the little laundry room outside. The lights don't work, of course. We get a good few few good shots here of Michael menacing right behind her through the door, through the window. Uh, the door locks and she's stuck inside. The little girl she's babysitting, Lindsay, comes to let her out after Paul calls. Now, uh, Annie has decided that she's going to shimmy out through the window and she gets stuck. So, of course, as the viewer, you're like, as soon as she sticks her head out that window, he's going to kill her. And he doesn't. Yeah. The little girl comes in, helps Annie out of the window. They return to the kitchen. Michael is menacing from the background again. She brings Lindsay over to Tommy's house to hang out with Laurie and Tommy. And Michael pops up from behind this tan station wagon. And he heads to her car, realizes she doesn't have her keys. She returns to the house to get them. When she gets in the car, she's like, hmm, there's condensation on the glass. And there's condensation on the glass because Michael is sitting in your backseat. He pops up, grabs her, strangles her. And they, they're they very kind of vague about whether he slits her throat or just stabs her. But he gets her. And this is our first kill, Tony, other than Michael's sister and, and the tow truck guy. But... I think this is one of the things that the the movie did very well. I felt like it built up that suspense and you kept waiting for that shooter drop and it kept not happening. And I didn't need the gore to be unnerved, you know? Loved it. Again, you know it's coming. Yeah. I mean, you're like, oh, he's going to be in the car. Back then, you didn't know. Outside of like, I love the fact that they set up the, the somewhat of a red herring where she goes, tries to get in the car, can't because she forgot her keys. And then mm-hmm. she comes back out and when she comes back in, to where the, the car is, the door's unlocked and he's already in the back seat. But she doesn't realize it until she's sitting there going, Hey, the door was unlocked. And that's when he jumps over. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just one of those, you don't realize it right away until she does it. Realize that's what she's doing the huh face for, mm. which I think is really interesting. We just forget that she forgot her keys, even though she's singing no key. Bye, Paul we when she goes back she doesn't have to unlock the car it's already unlocked yeah she just right. goes right in and they make a point of showing her hand opening the door with the keys in her hand exactly so yeah she doesn't have the key in the actual lock she just opens it yeah and again you know she doesn't know there's a killer on the loose but we do so when she gets in the car and i see the condensation you know she's not afraid but i am and i like that yeah and again, it gives you that redirection too, because she puts her fingers on the window and kind of leans forward and he's behind her. Yeah. You know? um, Tony, what did you think of the actual kill though? Um, I mean, me, me being the horror guy, I would have liked it to be a little more graphic, yeah. but it was what it was. It and... wasn't passionate enough for me. I mean, I waited an hour for this and he's waited for an hour for this. He's been stalking them. And it was kind of a lazy kill for me. It felt like he just kind of strangled her a little bit, like with one hand. And I would have liked to have seen it be a little more savage, you know, a little more, you know, passionate. And I just, you know, and I, again, hate horror movies. I hate violence. And it's one of the reasons I don't like horror movies because I, I really have a problem with like human on human just killing. And I just don't, it's not for me, you know, it's not for me, whatever. But at this point, I wanted to see him freaking go full hog on her. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, that's the weird thing. If like next time we, I don't want to jump ahead, but it's like, I believe she has her throat slit. That's the weird part about it. Does she? If, if I'm remembering correctly, like she's in the bed. Again, we'll get to the scene. I don't want to jump ahead too much. Right. But I think when we see her body, if I remember correctly, she actually has a it's very small amount of blood, hmm. but she has her throat slit. So I don't ever remember that in any cut anywhere. 
it almost seems like I, he strangles her or he stabs her through the seat. It's either one or something. the other. Again, yeah, because there's side. definitely a moment where like you hear like the knife noise hmm. when he's strangling her. And I was like, oh, did he cut her throat? Like, because the window is so like the condensation has gotten so foggy that you, it's very, you know, muted what you can actually see. And I figured yes. that was done on purpose because as Carpenter said, you're almost more afraid of what you can't see than what you can. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen some like, you know, wild flailing, you know, through the the condensated windows and his hand and the knife and, you know, quick movements and just give me some of that, you know. Right. Just give me some, right. you know, oh. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. So the kids are busy watching TV, but when Tommy gets up to look out the window, he sees Michael carrying Annie's limp body. He again tells Laurie that he saw the boogeyman, but she doesn't believe him. Meanwhile, our friend Loomis is still waiting at the Myers home. The three bullies from earlier show up and dare each other to go into the house. Loomis makes a creepy voice to scare them away and they run off. While he's feeling quite pleased with himself, the sheriff returns and scares him with a hand on the shoulder. He says he'll stay with the doctor on the off chance that he's right about Michael. Des, the sheriff seems to really love sneaking up on people. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice jump scare. It's probably one of the, the best jumps I had on the whole movie. I was like, oh. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, like Tony said earlier, he blames, you know, blames Loomis for... Yep for michael and uh and you know uh, i just really there yeah i just wish earlier the girl had said something to the sheriff about this maniac and the giant gold station wagon chasing around because then they might have known where to look for uh for michael yeah, yeah there's very little police work done in this movie very little he shows up let me talk to you and then they cut it away the scene you assume he's giving him this is his height. This is his weight. This is what he was driving when he went away. You know, yeah. it's like, we don't see it. You assume it's there, but man, this sheriff sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he is, does not do his job well. I mean, this maniac has stolen uh, the mental mobile with the markings on it, you know, mental mobile on the door. And it, he's <laughs> driving it around in this, you know, neighborhood of presumably, you know, 2,500 people. And, yeah, I mean, um, it's a small town. With the white mask on, mind you, cruising the high school and the junior and the elementary school, it feels like they should have picked this guy up in about two minutes. Well, that's the funny thing is you can definitely tell it's not an Italian neighborhood. If there's a car parked outside of the house, you know, Irma would be looking out the window and go, who the fuck is this? Call somebody. Oh, yeah. Okay, who is this? Who is this? Oh, shit. I'm it's telling so you, true. man, nothing's going on in the courtyard outside my condo because I am... Uh, the girl from the lady from Bewitched across the street. Like I uh, noticed everything that's going he's the on. The neighborhood watch. I'm bad. I'm so fucking nosy. I'm bad. <laughs> oh my goodness! So Linda and her boyfriend Bob show up outside the house where they're planning to meet up with Annie. The formerly brightly lit porch is now dark, and when they open the door, it's dark inside as well. Despite no one being home, Linda and Bob decide to make out on the couch, making themselves at home, not realizing that Michael is standing there watching them. Lori tells Linda that she has Lindsay and that Annie went to get Paul. So Linda and Bob have the house to themselves for now. Of course, they make themselves right at home in what I assume is the parents' bedroom. <laughs> and the phone keeps ringing. They take it off the hook and get back to business, which, as Tony pointed out, lasted about 26 seconds, maybe, if they're lucky. And a shadow travels across the room. They're not alone there. Bob goes down to get them a beer. While he's in the kitchen, the back door opens, and thinking somebody's playing a prank on him, he starts looking around. Michael rushes out from one of the doors and strangles him, lifting Bob up off the ground before plunging a knife into his abdomen and pinning him to the wall like a butterfly. As he stands there looking at him, he does that little iconic head tilt as if he was an animal or a child trying to make sense of something. 
And Tony, the suspension of disbelief in the scene uh, is clearly needed because I doubt the knife could hold up a guy's body weight, but it's still an interesting kill. I have so many thoughts on everything you just <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting to take a break. I'm like, I have to go back. First Sorry, of all, go back, back up. <laughs> all right, so they pull up in a van. And there, there's a lion there that always bugs the shit out of me. It's like, you know, they're joking back and forth. It's like, well, first I'll rip your clothes off. Then we'll rip my clothes off. Then we'll rip the, the little girl's clothes off. Well, <laughs> yes, I heard that. And I thought what I must have been fuck? making it up in my head. What? That's like, disgusting. That's, he, he, there's this, this line where he's like, first I'll rip your clothes off. You'll rip my clothes off. Then we'll rip Lindsay's. Lindsay's the little girl. Like, he said Bob, that? Bob, yes. Bob needs, Bob needs to be 20 feet, 20 yards away from a school. Because he's just <laughs> bad news. Does Bob have a mask? What does Bob have a mask? Because because he definitely has the uh, Stranger Danger van and the glasses. He's got the Dahmer glasses. Oh, He's a psycho. Man. All right, so that's the first thing. Second of all, no one and again, I just because I've watched this how many times, no one ever says where Lindsay's parents are when they're going to be home. Would you fuck in someone's bedroom? No, and you, and you don't know when they're going to be home. No. You don't do it at all. Like, We'll be back. Don't fuck in the bed till I get back. It's like, come on. Like, that's just, it's just, it's one of those things that always bother me because I'm like, that's guts. Because I don't care how long my, I don't trust it. I, we're not doing anything until they just know. Yeah, no. <laughs> Let alone yeah. drinking their beers and filing their nails in the, the, the parents' bed. Yeah. Like, what? Drinking their beer, doing the whole thing. And you're right. The body would slide down the knife. But again, the way it's done, the knife has the perfect light on for the glint. So you see it. Michael gets the head tilt, which has become the trademark animalistic, you know, mm -hmm. mannerisms that he has. It's like, is he admiring or is he questioning what he's done? That's yeah. the thing. It's like you never really know with him. You know, he he he's so quick in his kills. He stalks, he stalks, he stalks, he kills. Almost like he takes a step back going, oh, shit, I did this. With yeah. almost every kill he's done, he sort of stops and like does that. Yeah, I needed this scene in this movie. Um, without it, it's, I mean, this this was almost like the money shot kill. Um, you know, you got the knife, like you said, Tony, you know, you get that wide angle of, you know, him standing there in the moonlight with the guy pinned to the wall and the gleam of the knife. And, you know, it was a savage kill. And, you know, it was a, it was a really... Uh, it was a really disturbing shot and, and it needed it. The movie fucking needed this. <laughs> right. Because you didn't know what you were dealing with up until then. You just know he's evil. He has the blackest eyes. I get all, I get all. Yeah. Eyes. yeah. And just, he, so he's killed a couple of dogs and he's great at stalking. Well, he's not even subtle at stalking. He's terrible at stalking, yeah. but it's like, <laughs> now we know the power that this thing can unleash on these girls. He's stalking. So yes. that, you're right. It needed that scene to show you the monster that he actually is. And it was a beautiful scene. Like, you know, you get the full shot of them. And, you know, like I said, it's dark, but you got the moonlight and you see the mask and the, you know, the mannerisms. And yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah. It's, it's the cinematic moment of the movie, really. Yep. So upstairs, Linda is waiting for Bob. The door opens and there's a sheet covered figure wearing Bob's glasses. Linda teases him, uncovering her body as he stands mm -hmm. there unmoving. Annoyed with, annoyed with him, she gets up to call Laurie. The line connects, but Michael grabs her just as it does and strangles her with the phone cord. Laurie thinks that she's joking around with her, then wonders if possibly something's wrong. She looks across the street and sees the light come on and turn off again. She calls and no one answers. She checks on Tommy and Lindsay, and they're both sound asleep in bed. 
And Des, at this point, the characters around Laurie have just dwindled significantly. Yeah, I this scene, I struggled with it back and forth. I mean, I laughed out loud when I saw him standing in the door with the sheet on, with the holes cut in the eyes and the glasses on. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if it was a good choice by John Carpenter. Uh, I, I struggled with it because, yeah, it's cool because she thinks it's her boyfriend and we know it's Michael Myers. But I just don't know if Michael Myers was going to do that. Is he going to grab, go find a sheet, cut the eyes out, put the glasses on? I think I would have rather just seen... You know, I don't know. There's a couple ways. He could have held the body up in the door for a minute and, you know, she could have seen him there and then he could have dropped the dead body and been standing there, Michael Myers, and fuck! But I don't know if I like this scene. Tony, am I right or am I wrong? I, I think I see why you're saying it because we're so used to other slashers doing that. Yeah. It's not Michael Myers. Michael Myers is about the subtlety. I do, I do, can, I can't appreciate where's he going to find a sheet did he go through the laundry do you go to the laundry room find a sheet this is where the eyes i'm sorry i've cut paper eyes i cut snowflakes i can't keep those fucking scissors no i don't think nothing ever lines up i think he did yeah. it perfectly but anyway so yeah he, scenes from this movie is that door swinging open him standing there with the glasses on as silly as it may look now back then it was fucking chilling because it and then he's standing there and yeah. She tries to make a joke, and he's all you hear is his breathing. Yep. So it creates that tension again that Carpenter is a fucking genius for with just his his foley work of the breathing, and then yeah. nothing. And then she gets up to call, and then we have the piano, the dun, 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 dun another iconic score from this movie. Mm-hmm. That and then he strangles her, and this is the first time we get a perfect look at the mask when she finally dies, and he pulls the phone up to his ear to hear Laurie talk. First time we actually see the mask as it really is it's stark white no emotions that's what you're dealing with is totally yeah i i wish you know what i'm, I'm with you i i did like it. it it looked a little funny like i said the sheet and everything looked a little funny but i did like that you know what he was doing with it i kind of wished then because it was almost like a little like just an instant of comic relief because i did laugh when i saw him standing there in the sheet i was like oh it's kind of funny I wish he had ripped off and then charged her, you know, or something like that. I just wanted the yin and the yang. I wanted, you know, I just wanted a little more after that. But well, you also have to remember Michael Myers is not a runner. He's no. a stalker. He's a he's, you know, slow. He's very slow in his predatory nature, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and he does move when he needs to, but yeah. It was just, you know, I I feel like they could have given her the reveal that it was not her boyfriend and it was Michael Myers. I felt like that could have been scarier or more shocking. Right. So I just think from this point on, the movie is, is and I hate to say perfect because that's, there's obviously going to be some flaws, but it's like, oh. as soon as Laurie hangs up the phone and starts to walk across the street, the tension that's building from this point till the end of the to me doesn't stop. I right, love Right, because she was the, the intended thing. target all along. So... Right. And just the way she like carefully makes her way across. I know I'm getting ahead of your of your your it's narration, okay. but it's like the way that from here on goes is just insane. I, I just yeah. I'll let you go with it, and we'll we'll talk right. about it. So very quickly, Loomis is still waiting for Michael. He's standing outside, and he turns his head, and he notices the tan station wagon. I had a little bit of problem with this. Like, did it, is there a cut scene where he actually walks away from the house? Like, like walks away from the Myers house and sees it a little further down. It was like, it just seemed like for a dude that's been standing out there for the past hour, he probably would have noticed this 
you know, very noticeable tan station wagon before now. Yeah. Totally agree. And and you're telling me they couldn't put a deputy like, you know, hey, maybe we should get a deputy to like, you know, just sit out here for the night in case this guy comes back, which you're so sure he's going to, we're going to get sleeping bags and spend the night here. Yeah. It was you know, the sheriff's like, oh, I'll stay here with you all night. And it's like, yeah, I feel like they would have had a cop, you know, parked outside yeah. the house or down the street, you know. Yeah. It just was, it was seemed like a little too convenient. Like I would have at least liked to see Loomis be like, I'm going to give up. He's obviously not coming back and walk away and then see the tan station wagon and run back and get the sheriff or something like that. Because oh. the other thing is, is that, um, that tan station wagon was parked relatively close to those houses. So Michael carried Annie's dead body right through the front yard. Yeah. Oh, that's what I, th I think there there's, there's gotta be a scene. And I'm not remembering it a hundred percent, but I almost feel like there was a scene of him leaving the Myers house waiting for so long and started okay. walking. Yeah. And again, I don't know if that's the novelization that I read or there is a scene, but obviously it can't be. None of these are across from the Myers house. Right. You know? right. So it can't be that. So I, I, I'm 90% sure he got tired of waiting there, figuring he was totally off and started wandering the neighborhoods to see what he could find. Yeah. Still sure I, that he was in town, but yeah, I feel like they missed an opportunity. Cause I mean, the, as I know they wanted to have Michael Myers in the mental mobile so people would recognize him when he was following and everything. But I feel like he should have left the mental mobile at the first kill where he killed the tow truck driver or whatever and, and had taken, taken, truck. taken the red truck because that car was just in that neighborhood. It was going to be so easy for them to find him. He was driving it everywhere. And yeah. Yeah, that I mean that you really have to suspend your belief to say that you know they weren't going to be able to find that car in that neighborhood as much as he was driving around. Yeah, I mean honestly, if he had taken the the red truck, you know, uh, if he had left some sort of a um, like a clue back with the the tan vehicle and the white clothes, you know, so that Loomis would think maybe he's got you know a tow truck or something like that, that might have worked a little better, but. Ah, because yeah, Loomis never even saw the dead body. He didn't even know there was a crime committed there. Yeah. So anyways, I mean, I really felt like it was kind of a a, a moment where I was like, if he, this dude's been standing out here for the past, you know, three or four hours, he would have noticed the mental mobile right there. So, um, you know, I feel like they kind of missed, even just even if he had walked, you know, a couple steps down the street, you know, yeah. it would have worked out a little better for me. Um, you know, especially where he's on such high alert, you would think that that would be something he would notice right away. Lori grabs her keys and decides to walk over to the other house and see what's going on. There's no answer at the door or to her calls. And Lori begins to explore the quiet and dark house. Oh, we've upset the dog. We need Michael Myers so we can eat it. <laughs> oh, my God, no. <laughs> They're really not going to taste good. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Upstairs, she finds Annie dead on the bed with Judith Meyer's headstone above her. Bob's body flops down from somewhere above her, hanging, and Linda's been shoved into a cupboard. And I'm going to pause right here. Does anybody have anything they'd like to say to that? Because the movie really just starts moving at this point. Go ahead, Tony. I, I just... It, the, the tension set up is she, so she enters the house, looking around. Again, not turning any lights on, not doing anything. Like, let me just wander through the house. I'm sh I'm not babysitting the kid. I'm just going to walk through the dark. 
and do my thing and see if my friends are here. No one's answering. No one answered the phone. No one's answering to anybody calling a name. That's the only thing that I really had a big problem with. It's like, I can't come to my own home if it's on all darkness. As soon as I come in, every light's on because yeah. I've seen too many. <laughs> but it's it, it, come on. That that's the only thing that bothered me. Love the iconic scene of the headstone. Love that this was one of the first movies that like here's the I forgot what they call it the 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 trail of bodies that are left. The, you know, right. the discovery of all the victims. And then we get fade in reveal from behind her. Yes, yeah, so that's the, the the most iconic moment to me is that when she's in the hallway and his face just appears behind her and it's like, oh my God. And um, I thought it was interesting and I think it might've been that guy, Dean, that said the point of it was it's almost supposed to be like <clears throat> your eyes getting used to the dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you like, you know, when you're first in the dark, you can't see anything. And then as your eyes get used to it, you start to pick things out. And it's almost like he was there the whole time. You just didn't see him until your eyes get used to the dark. And I was like, that is frigging terrifying. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always the person that thinks that the, uh, the pile of laundry on the chair is a person. So. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, this scene was pretty good. You know, it had a couple of decent jump scares. I thought the girl shoved in the closet. I actually laughed because the look on her face was kind of funny to me. <laughs> but yeah, she but, had a little bit of a silly expression. Yeah. But uh, it was cool. And then, like you said, you know, when you see Michael Myers there, it's, it's scary for sure. Yep. So he slashes her arm with his knife and she falls over the, st- the edge of the staircase. He gives chase. She runs for the front door and it's locked. She runs for the back door, shutting a door behind her between herself and him. She's unable to get the back door open. Michael begins breaking through the door, blocking him from getting to her. Just as he gets through, she breaks the glass and pushes the rake aside that was keeping the door shut. She runs for it, screaming for help. Uh, the neighbors refuse to help her. So, so much for like a small town neighborly love, but um, <laughs> She makes a run for the house where she was babysitting. She's lost her keys at some point in this melee. She's banging on the doors. Michael's stalking across the street towards her. She's able to wake up Tommy by throwing a flower pot up at his window. (laughs) And she gets into the house. She thinks she's safe until she realizes that one of the windows is wide open and the phone is dead. So this is the real chase and it's been brewing all along. Um, I kind of do question, I, I would like feedback from both of you, why Michael chose Laurie to begin with, because he attacked his sister and he attacked Linda, Bob and Annie that are promiscuous. And, you know, that that it kind of seemed like his sister having sex with that boy is what set him off to begin with. And Laurie's not that. Laurie's the exact opposite. So was it because she stared, dared to step on his porch and he just happened to imprint on her or is it something else? It, it depends which timeline you believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, again, going back to the, the the history of it all, it's, you know, she's a sister. We find that out in the sequel, but at the same time, also in the TV, when he's one of the cut scenes is basically Loomis going into his room after like before, you know, the scene we see him coming out with the other doctor, mm-hmm. they examine his room, his room's torn apart, beds ripped up shelves are broken on the back of his door is carved the name is carved the word sister Mm. and that was cut because john carpenter wasn't sure he wanted to follow that angle so in a way john carpenter's quote preferred version it's not a sister and we don't know it literally is just stalking and again maybe the first person he saw up close as he's in his own house and i think he had a perfect perfect way of putting it he imprinted on her because he's territorial 
Mm. Right. Which is kind of animalistic. Animalistic tendencies, hence the head tilt, looking at Bob. You know, that's a really great way of looking at it. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, so this scene where she runs across the street and he follows her, um, she, she, she goes to the neighbor's house. It's a small little neighborhood. I mean, if somebody's banging on my door out there, uh, some girl, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I'm probably not going to open my door. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that's shitty to say, but I'm just probably not going to open my door. It's just, you know, she's running from somebody and I don't want her or him in my house or whatever it is. But oh, I am going to call 911, you know, just stay outside the door. The cops are going to be here in a couple of minutes. Um, so I feel like, you know, in this neighborhood, the cops would be there like real fast, real. Fast. And as far as the question you're asking about why he chose her, I feel like, you know, not knowing, I didn't know that it was the sister, any of that, but I feel like he saw her and the little kid and immediately identified them as him and his sister back when he was a small child. Good point. That's actually so, a great point. Yeah. And locked onto that and, you know, and it was something familiar to him and that's why he chose her. That's what I thought. That's a good one too. And I, like I want to say, I thought it was very uh, shitty of her to run back to the house and then when he's right on her heels he's like open the door I want to let the killer to kill you two too she should have said do not unlock this door call 911 and she should have bolted down the street I mean we've already dis- discussed how slow Michael Myers is she's out running this guy every every inch of the way <laughs> oh dear so she grabs some knitting needles from her kid oh and please give me this first <laughs> She tries to hide behind behind the sofa, but Michael jumps up and attempts to stab her again. But this time he gets stabbed. She jabs him with her knitting needle in his neck. (laughs) She takes the knife. He's left embedded in the couch, peers over, seeing him laying on the carpet. She thinks he's dead. She seems to think that this is the end of him. And she tosses the knife on the ground. And uh, Des, I say that Laurie should have been a bit more thorough in this examination, wouldn't you? Oh, that, that is not even where the problem starts, okay? <laughs> she stabs him in the neck with the knitting needle, and he goes down like a $2 whore. I mean, he goes down, you hear the body go, Pum-pum! and I, I literally laughed out loud. I'm like, no fucking way. Did this put him down and out like that? I mean, again, you stab me in the neck with a knitting e- a needle, I'm ripping it out of my neck, and I'm punching you in the face. If this guy goes down, he's out. She picks up the knife, like you said, after she lays, she kind of sits down on the couch, like, ah, reflecting on the whole incident. You know, she's not running up and getting the kids and be like, everybody out of the house. Or taking the knife and stabbing him 20 times in the throat to make sure this is over. No. She lays back. Ah. Then she gets up and she's like, all right. She places the knife back in his hand. I'm being facetious, <laughs> but places the knife back in his hand. And then, you know, she goes, goes upstairs. So yeah, I had problems with this scene, man. Come on, Tony. <laughs> I, I agree hundred percent. Unfortunately, um, yeah, as soon as the, the needle goes in the neck, it's like, he goes down. And, and I mean, he goes down and, and it's so blatant. Like, Oh, I have a knife drop. It's yeah. like, it's it, he wants people to scream. What are you doing? Stop it! it yeah. He did. John Carpenter did a great job with setting the audience up to know. At this point, you know he's coming back. You know he's going to fuck with her. So he's setting it up so the audience is completely on edge about it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. She's being dumb. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. The, the knitting needle was the wrong was the wrong weapon for this scene. Like she should have hit him in the head with like, you know, the lead doorstop, like in uh, misery. Like, give me something I can believe. Like she knocked them out for a minute. You know, you know that that least, thing was good. I was gonna say she she was carving that pumpkin. So you know yeah. she knows that there's a knife, just a couple of like I would make a run for the kitchen and get that knife. But even a knife wouldn't have knocked him out. I mean, she knocked him out. That's right. what the point that was the scene. So give me something that's gonna knock him out. Right, right. I feel you. So at this point, Loomis is wandering around outside, somehow missing the screaming at the top of her lungs teenage girl that just ran across the street. He tells the sheriff that Michael is there and to patrol the back of the houses while he watches the front. Lori goes to check on the kids. They're all right, but they're scared. She tells them that she killed the boogeyman, but Tommy screams when suddenly Michael is behind Lori again, brandishing the knife because, of course. She locks the kids into a room, then opens the the veranda doors to make it look like she went outside, then hides in the closet. Uh, you know that Michael's not fooled by this at all. So, you know, I mean, bold strategy, but then she jumps into the closet and she literally makes as much noise as she possibly could. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, she's like hitting the friggin' wire hangers and she's j- getting down into the corner and, and she's going, ah, ah. it's yeah. like, dude is not going to be fooled. This scene is where the train just completely falls off the tracks for me, but go ahead. Okay, so Michael's not fooled and begins breaking the slats off the closet door. The light's turning off and on again, and that's a little, you know, a little ominous. That gruesome mask is staring at her. Uh, She grabs a wire hanger, undoes it, and uses it to poke him in the face. Once again, Michael drops the knife. This time, Laurie grabs it and gives Michael a good jab with it as the figure falls back from the closet door. She slowly opens the closet door to find him laying on the ground again. Once again, she throws the knife down right next to him because she didn't learn her lesson the first time. So, as you know, hit me. <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus Christ with this guy. Is he having seizures? I mean, he, he sticks his head in the closet. I'm like, okay, this is fucking great. It's scary. She pokes him with a fucking a coat hanger, a little coat hanger in the leather mask. And he's like, and he drops the knife. Like, again, if I'm coming after you or anybody else and I've got this butcher knife, and they poke me in the face with a coat hanger, you're basically like poking a bee's nest. I'm not dropping the knife. Now I'm just going to stab you a couple more times. I mean, I but, suppose you could also say like he's obviously has mental issues. Yeah. And maybe and, pain is a is a thing and he feels pain and he freaks out and drops the knife. Like, oh, so know. she picks it up. She, she pokes him once with it. And again, he's knocked out. <laughs> like this guy is getting knocked out for the wrong reasons. And he's laying on the floor unconscious again from a from a knife wound, which makes zero sense. And then she puts the knife in his hand again. (laughs) No, no, John Carpenter, bad, bad. I'm scolding John Carpenter for this. You want to give it to me once to build the suspense? Okay, no one's this fucking dumb. No one is this dumb. First of all, she got him in the eye with the coat hanger. Anyone's gonna gonna react to an eye poke. Did she get him in the eye? Even if I accidentally tap myself in the eye, the count for like ten minutes. I didn't see it was the eye. I didn't see it was the eye. It it was. She got him in the eye. Okay. Okay. I'll give him that. that. So we drop the knife. Then she gets him. Gets him again. It looks like she nails him in the throat. So I don't know why there's not more blood leaking out of the guy. But again, this sets up the. All right. I've stabbed him in the eye. I've stabbed him. 
needle and I've stabbed him with a knife now. Most normal people before slashers became slashers would think that's it. Think of how you 17. I can't even say us because we, we were we were ruined. We figured that out years ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, most people, most nor- think of how we were when we were 11. You think you, you do enough damage. If you did that at like 11 or 12, you would think this person's not going to get up. And that's where we were in 1978. So, I mean, looking us watching this now, it's like, oh, you're so stupid. He's going to get up because we're conditioned yeah. to know the killer always gets up. So the point that we made a joke of it in Scream. It's like, oh, the killer always comes back. Not in my movie. You know, it's like. Right. But yeah. back then, the, no one was supposed to get up. Yeah. And he this did. was the That's first why... movie with that, that happened. But just in case, don't leave the knife there for a second time. Totally. That that I can't. I can't. <laughs> Hold on to that weapon. Yeah, yep. you have to realize that, like like Tony said, we've been watching these kind of movies for decades now, and you know the killer always gets back up again. You you don't separate. You don't like there's rules for horror movies because, but they it started here. This was the first time. Although I will say that initially, when they were doing screenings for this movie, they did a screening for a bunch of college kids. And when she threw the knife down in this scene, one of the college kids yelled out, well, you deserve to die now. <laughs> I mean, Michael Myers had a fucking glass jaw. If he was a boxer, <laughs> he wasn't getting the title. This guy was getting knocked out left and right by Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> All right. So let's let's take a step back, though. If we're if we've used the term animalistic mm-hmm. and territorial so many times in this podcast. Yeah. What do animals do when they're hurt? They play dead. Oh, I like okay. that. I like I'll that. Three times in a row, she's she's thinking he's dead. Let's her guard down. He sits up, gonna fuck her shit up. I like that, Tony. I never even thought about that. That that gives me more hope. I'm digging it. I'm feeling it. Okay. Yep. So Laurie opens the door where the children are hiding and takes a terribly long amount of time explaining to them what they should do instead of just grabbing them and running directly out of the house. <laughs> the children leave, and Laurie decides to sit there and catch her breath with her back to the killer. Uh... <laughs> you see- you see him sit up. He's, you know, fuzzy behind her and he turns to face her. And that was creepy. It gave me creeps. Outside, Loomis that. sees the children running, screaming from the house and finally clues in what's going on. Michael's on his feet again and heading for the unaware Laurie. He grabs her and tries to strangle her. In the struggle, she pulls off his mask and we see his face. Uh, it appears to be disfigured and not exactly correct. Loomis appears at the top of the stairs and takes a shot at Michael before he runs away. Loomis chases him and pumps a bunch of bullets into Michael before he falls backwards off the balcony. He's laying on the grass, not moving. There's a brief exchange where Laurie asks if that was the boogeyman, and Loomis says it was. He looks over the edge of the balcony, and the body's gone. Once we, At this point, we get a, another look at a fully traumatized Laurie. Loomis is looking pissed, and takes a last. we take a last look at the houses and a couple of the different um, scenes from the movie, and... It ends on the Myers home as we hear that ragged breathing under the mask as the screen fades to black and to the credits. Hmm. Tony, can you answer why his face was disfigured? Oh, the only part that's disfigured. It's like his, where he gets his eye. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. But the funny thing is when he pulls the mask off, he pulls the fucking prosthetic off because the actor was an idiot. Oh, no. So when he goes to put the mask on, the, the prosthetic actually comes down with it. And you, oh. it, it, that it looks weird, but they already filmed it and one, one, one thing to do about it. 
Yeah, oh, it just no. looked like a, fun, a funny eye. And I was like, oh, his face look, it looks a little dif disfigured there. I didn't even think that it was the same eye that got poked. Yeah, it, yeah. Didn't, it didn't play that way for me either. Um, hmm. when, so when he sits up, I think I heard him say, no fucking way. The knife is still here. <laughs> what are the odds of that? I didn't hear that, but <laughs> I'm sure he thought it. Oh God. So Tony, oh, go ahead. Take us through this final scene. I just, I, that sit up scene in the back because it's done in silence. There's no soundtrack. There's no, there's literally nothing. It's scene until he literally sits up, turns his head, and it's and the kids run out of the house, and you don't get music till he starts walking towards her. That's mm. what got me the most about the scene, and what I think affected me the most when I was a kid, and basically has influenced me as an adult of what scares me the most. It, perfect example. I don't know if you guys have seen The Strangers. When mm -mm. you haven't seen it, no. there's a no. scene. It's basically it's a home invasion movie, but. Liv Tyler is doing her things around the kitchen and it's a big wide shot, but behind her comes out of the darkness. Like Michael Myers comes this person with a map there just watching her and she's washing distance to the sink. She's lighting a cigarette. And then he just goes off somewhere else in the house. There's no soundtrack. There's no musical string sting. There's nothing to let you know he's there. And if you missed it, you missed it. But it's, those are the scares that get under my skin because you know what? I'm sitting here down in my basement to you guys there could be someone two feet behind me because i'm not looking that way could be watching me right now waiting for me to notice them so it's the shit that scares me so tony I, again i'm not i'm not a horror movie guy and it's not because i'm not afraid of them it's just not really the, the genre that i appreciate um but they don't scare me i'm not i'm not scared by horror movies like i've never seen a horror movie that actually scared me. At okay this wait morning. a second stop no, immediately hold on no no because I'm, I'm gonna get i'm gonna get there I'm okay. gonna get there. Okay. Um, I can appreciate cool scenes in this movie. The two scenes that I thought were really great-looking scenes and creepy were the bush scene. Obviously, when he steps up from the bush and steps back in, I'm like, "All right, that's great. He's a maniac." And the sit-up scene that you just said—great scenes, not scary for me. Slasher movies don't scare me. What scares the fuck out of me, and the scariest thing I've ever seen that made me immediately turn it off and never watch any more of it was paranormal activity. When the guy's watching the video camera he shot the night before and his wife is standing over him while he's sleeping. I have chills right now just thinking about it. Uh, I fucking hate movies like that because they scare the dick out of me because I imagine, what the fuck? What if the lid is standing over me in two o'clock in the morning and I don't know it? <laughs> like, <laughs> which is why I now live upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I also want to call bullshit because... There was a night where Des goes, hey, I'm going to watch a movie out here. Do you want to watch it with me? And I was like, what movie? And he was like, The Ring. I'm like, eh, I'm good. I'm all set. I'm not going to watch that. And he turns off all the lights and he starts the movie. And about maybe 20 minutes, half an hour later, I see all the lights come back on. <laughs> well, I was like, yeah, you're scared. <laughs> yeah. Some movies that could actually happen, like. If it could actually happen, like, again, paranormal activity, like the thought of my house becoming, like, possessed or my wife becoming possessed, like, these things could happen, possibly. I don't like to think about it. I don't want to go there. The Ring, I don't want to go there. Uh, one movie that I watched that I thought was really, really scary uh, was Sinister. That movie scared the fuck out of me. 
that's that's actually one of the ones I usually when someone's like, all right, what's the scariest movies you've ever seen? That's usually near the top of Paranormal Activity, the first one and the third one. Um, yeah. And I'll also add the Spanish movie Terrifier, mm-hmm. not the clown one that's out now, but it's sorry, scared yeah. the living hell out of me. Yeah, so you you would agree on Sinister then? You thought that was scary too? Oh yeah, I mean ghosts, ghosts and spirits get me. Me too. Because all bets are off. There's yeah. no defense against them. You have you don't know what their powers are. You're just you're you're a victim. It's the unknown of something watching you. Again, I, home invasion movies don't usually bother me, but it's the the scenes that set up the the stalking, the watching, the waiting, biding mm. their time until they have an opportunity to strike against you. Now, granted, right. you got a gun, you got a knife, you could physically defend yourself, but it's that tension, it's that waiting, it's the unknown of me going, what, what's going on? You see something? You heard something? Shit, what was it? That's yeah. what these scenes do for me. It's that primal fear of the unknown that everybody has, whether you, you know, it, it's why I don't camp. I can't. It's, yeah. it's no. literally a piece of nylon between me and whatever is out there. No, which fucks my shit up all day. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah, yeah I'll tell too. you what really frightened me was um, not a movie, but The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix because of all of the quote unquote ghosts that are in it. He, the director purposely put ghosts in scenes and like people are just talking to each other normally and there's like a ghost behind them and they're hidden. They're not meant to be like super noticeable, but that it created this sensation of being watched constantly as you're mm-hmm. watching this show. And it really was terrifying. And once I realized what was happening, I was like, Oh God, no, like yeah. really scary. Yeah. Love Tony, I couldn't live in a house. I couldn't live in a house. I would not move out my condo. It's impenetrable. I'm on the second <laughs> floor. There's one way in. I put a super lock on my door that clicks over. It holds 800 pounds of pressure. You cannot get into my condo. There is fucking no way in. We are safe. I could not sleep in a regular house. There are too many points of entry. I am terrified of home invasion. I am not leaving this condo. This is where I will die. Okay? (laughs) Hopefully of old age. (laughs) Hopefully not with your wife standing over you at 2 a.m.? Well, that's not going to happen because I have a lock on my apartment door. (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness so any final thoughts anybody tony uh just again i grew up watching this movie this is like the number one horror there are other movies that introduced me to horror um but this is the one that i i as a 10 year old kid and it scared the living hell out of me and i i all all movies basically have to reach the bar of halloween to be even like good and yeah, Tony, over the years, it, it's kind of, you know, it's it's sweetened in my memory, but in reality, it's kind of like I'm seeing the flaws of it, and I can understand that. So, Tony, you said this scared you when you were a little kid? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you saw it on a VCR tape at your friend's house. Oh, yeah. And totally. did it, and you were too young to see it, obviously, and would you say it kind of screwed you up for a few months to where you could see why a kid your age probably shouldn't have seen it? Like, were you actually genuinely scared for, like, weeks after you saw it? Not so much scared for weeks after because I, I, I have this awesome aunt. I'll just well, story time with Tony. I have this awesome aunt who would basically would take me to see, want me to see. Nice. And so you know, I started my horror career in, in 1980 with The Island. That was the first horror movie I was. 
and I are a horror movie. It's a pirate movie with Michael Caine and David Warner, which is a really fun movie written by Peter Benchley. But it's yep. got so much fucking violence in it. For a 10-year-old boy, the first, the first scene is an, a, an axe to the head. Oh, nice. goodness. And my aunt looks over at me. She's like, oh, my God. Do we have to leave him? Like, no. And from that <laughs> point on, I was addicted. Adrenaline, rush, fear, whatever I had, I wanted to experience it again. And I've been chasing that ever since. It's, it's my drug. That's my girlfriend, every friend, every, everybody I've ever been with. Why do you like horror movies so much? Like, it's just screwed up to like that you think watch people get killed is fun. It's like, I don't. I'm, I appreciate cinematography, music, scene setup. That if you can make me feel scared in the comfort of my own home under a blanket on my couch and you make me feel scared, you've done something very few people can do. That's a talented yeah. fucking person right there. Sure. So it's like, I appreciate, I'm not getting off on the kills. I'm not getting off on the violence. I appreciate how they're done. Yeah. I appreciate this, the, the, the makeup effects, this, the, the practical effects. But You're very grounded in the fact that it's fake. It's not real. Oh, completely. And, you know, trying to get my son into it, which is a really fucking bad mistake, was a whole other podcast. Nice. You triggers. Nice. What I would do, because he, he asked questions, because I mean, I have shit off in my house. It's horror. But he's not into them. I've come to the conclusion he's just not into horror movies. And that's okay. And I don't want him to be because I am. But the way I, I tried to do it, he always said, well, what's this about? What's that about? And I'd tell him. But I said, but this is why. And like the movie. So the thing is one that was high on the list. If I were showing a radar movie first, that would be the one. Because there's no man, no, as you said, there's no human on human violence. It's right. human on alien, human on monster. Yep. So it's easier to understand that. But I would show him the makings of. Like this is the sculpture. This is how they add the blood. It's not real blood. It's Cairo serpent, the blood. So we go through the makings of the practical effects to show them this is movie magic. This is how movies are made. And then I might show them a small scene here, but I still won't show them the whole movie because it's too much for, for kids to see. Yeah. And we were, we were a different generation than kids nowadays. So, I mean, we saw everything way too early. Did it scare the shit out of me for a long time? Yes, that's, I guess, to get around a long way around your answer. Yes, it did scare me. Yes, it screwed me up for a while in the sense that I wanted more. Right. So my introduction to horror when I was a little kid, I was living in Belmont and me and a couple of my friends had gone to see a movie. And after the movie had gotten out, it was like a light movie, whatever, for little kids. We snuck into seeing American Werewolf in London. We saw it from the beginning and I was way too young to see this movie. And it fucked me up. My mother was going to, my mother was a nurse at the time and, you know, she was a single mom. We had an apartment in Belmont and she has, she has to get up early and she would go to the bus and go to work. And then I would have to get myself ready and go to school a few hours later. And I was so scared that Jack was going to show up or my mother was going to turn into a werewolf. Like I was fucking convinced. Like I'd be like, mom, and she'd be like, what? Go to bed. And I'd just say it because I'd want to make sure she hadn't turned into a werewolf. Oh Mom, <laughs> yeah. All right, go to bed. Okay. You know, Mom. And I'd do this until I would fall asleep. And she finally was like, yo, what is going on with you? And then I told her, you know, I snuck into this movie and I'm afraid you're going to turn into a werewolf. <laughs> and uh, I would get up early and walk to the bus stop with her because I was afraid. I, it, the movie fucking scared me. So, Yeah. <laughs> And mine was uh, a trilogy of terror, that Zulu warrior, the small little Zulu warrior guy, <laughs> chasing Karen Black. To this day, to this day, 
I don't like dolls. I don't especially the like little. Uh, nope. Nope. Oh. All set. Just awesome. nope. That because it was on you know uh, channel fifty six creature double feature. Yeah. And I saw it, and nope. I, to this day, I can't do it. I can't do that movie because it scared the living daylights out of me, and I have no interest in ever seeing it ever again. Awesome. So, yeah. All right. Let's. We all do that. Let's do our rewatch scores. Uh, Tony, you go first as the um, resident horror official and the guest. I'm I'm gonna, obviously going to go high on this one. I'm going to go 4.5 because there are some obviously glaringly embarrassing tropes that I laugh at now. But the, the, the biggest ability to be a horror fan is to put yourself back in the era and age that the film was made mm-hmm. to appreciate it. You show Jaws to kids these days, they're just like, oh my God, everything's so fake about this. You show them it like when they were seven, like back in the day, like it scared the hell out of us. So this is another movie that's like that. Mm-hmm. You put your 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old in 1980, this is groundbreaking. This is scaring the hell out of you. So you, I go, watching this movie makes me feel 10. So my, my nostalgia factor is huge with this one. Mm-hmm. So obviously I'm going to go 4.5 in this one. Go in. All right. Uh, I'm going to go a little lower. I'm going to go 3.5. And the reasons being why is, yep, there's definitely some problems here. There's definitely some things that probably shouldn't have gotten cut that might have helped things make a little bit more sense to me. But it's the granddaddy. It's the it's the benchmark. It's what started it. As I was telling Des earlier today, I believe that if this movie hadn't been made, that it's possible we wouldn't have had Friday the 13th. It's possible we wouldn't have had Nightmare Before Elm Street because the the movie theaters i mean the movie studios were not making horror movies they were not interested that was lowbrow you know entertainment and they didn't want to do it and this movie making as much money as it did changed the landscape for you know directors and writers and actors and it opened up a whole new thing so you got to give it the credit that it's due so i'm going to go 3.5 all right um so when this movie ended today I said to myself, fucking movie's horrible. Like the acting's horrible. There's so many just the, the camera work wasn't good for me. There were tons of scenes where it's day, then it's night, and it's wet and it's raining and it's not. And she's leaving the knife by the body. And you know, but after talking it through with you guys, I mean, I, I think I appreciate it more. I wanted to give it one rewatch, but I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it two because it's the OG and it deserves our respect. But at the same time, you know, you say, yeah, you gotta, you gotta rate it for what it was. 1978, blah, 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 blah. No, a good movie is a great movie. Jaws is a great movie. The acting's great. The writing's great. The camera works great. The Jaws shark isn't great, but it doesn't matter because the movie is great. Back then, Star Wars, 70s, it's fucking great. This movie is not great. But with that being said, Tony has a 4.5. Delin has a 3.5. I have a 2. This is my sliding scale. I make the rules. It's not scientific. This should be a 3, 2.75. But I'm not going to do that to this movie. This movie is a 4.0 rewatch. I'm doing that for the horror folk out there. I'm doing it because it's the OG. This is a great movie. If you like horror, you're going to love this movie. If you don't like horror like me, you could probably skip it. But 4.0, great movie. If you haven't seen Halloween, go see it. 
Tony, thank you for joining us tonight. I hope I didn't crap on this movie too much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I always love it. Uh, Dylan, again, I love doing movies with you. And uh, we will be back next week where we will be reviewing The Lost Boys. And we'll also be having a new host on with us, Mickey. I'm looking forward to uh, doing the show with her and hearing her thoughts on Lost Boys. And I want to thank you, the fans, for stopping by, listening to the show, supporting the podcast. And if you'd like to support us further, you can do that on the Anchor page. It helps us put out better content. So until next week, hey, did you ever see that movie? See you later. Bye. Yeah.